porch. Welcome. Wow. Okay, okay. Wow, okay. For those that don't know, I've been gone for like two months. That's a warning, actually. I have no idea what's going on in this mouth. Uh, Holy Ghost has been doing all sorts of stuff in me. But I'm so excited, so thankful to be here. I'm JD, if we haven't met. And just want to give a quick welcome, as always, to some Porch Live locations tuning in. Please help me welcome Porch Boise, Porch North Houston, and Porch Cincinnati watching in the house tonight. And of course, my friends in Dallas, welcome. So glad that you are all here. We are jumping into a new series tonight called Scandals, where we are looking at some of the most crazy, scandalous stories in the Bible that are actually part of the ancestral tree, the, the, the family tree, you could say, of Jesus, the Savior of the world. We're looking at the sinners that make up our Savior, that we worship and love today. And it is crazy. Before we get to that, talking about family, we are heading into the holidays where we have Thanksgiving coming up, Christmas. We're about to be spending more time, uh, some of us than we'd like, with extended family. And I have this tradition every year where my family, actually my mom's side, celebrates Thanksgiving the weekend before Thanksgiving. And so that way everyone can for sure be there and then they can go to like everyone else's Thanksgiving on the actual day. And I always do this thing where I take like three to four friends with me to my family's Thanksgiving. I just, I'm like, you have to come witness this. This is insane what takes place at these events. My family is absolutely crazy and I love them for it. But something that I do every single time is while we were driving there, I give them the lowdown. I'm like, okay, first you're going to meet my cousin so-and-so. I won't say their names, won't put them out there like that. But I tell them, this is so-and-so. I tell them all about them. Then I'm like, then you'll meet Uncle Bubba. I will put him out there. Uncle Bubba, here's what he likes and here's what he, know, what he does and drinks and all these different things. And then you got aunt so-and-so and all these different people. And then you got my crazy grandmother and all this stuff. And I explain them because I'm kind of like proud, but I'm also kind of warning them what's to come. So no one's super shocked when they see all these things. And the reality is I tell them a lot of the funny stuff or the dramatic stories, but I for sure leave out the things that are a part of what you could say makes up our family drama. And I'm sure that most of you can identify with family drama. And it just seems like every family, there is something going on. There is no such thing as a perfect family. And what we're gonna see here tonight is that even though I don't share, I kind of conceal all of my family drama in front of my friends, Matthew does the exact opposite with Jesus' family. He puts all the drama out there. Because what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at Matthew chapter one. And if you don't know a little bit of context, this is really, really important. A lot of times when you open up this, the book of Matthew, you skip over probably the first paragraph because it's a bunch of really hard names that you can't pronounce. And that list of names is actually super, super important. And Matthew did it for a reason because he knows that if you're a good Jew reading at this time, every single one of these names, behind every single one of these names is a story. And I think when we think about the family tree of Jesus, Jesus being perfect, we think that the people that make up Jesus' family were probably really good people, really moral people, probably came from a wealthy family. But if you're a Jew reading this and you have studied books like Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and the books they had at the time when this was written, you would know that it's actually the opposite. That by Matthew listing out these names in Matthew chapter one that lead up to the savior that is Jesus, 
by listing out the names of his great, 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 great grandparents, what he is doing is airing out all of Jesus' family drama. And that's why we're calling this series Scandals, because most people don't venture into the Old Testament. First off, because it's just really hard to read. Sometimes it can be confusing. It can be intimidating to keep up with. But when you actually start trying to dive in, you start reading stories that you're like, how is this in the, in the butt? You start turning red. You're like, what am I reading? Okay, back to like, I don't know, First Peter. And you go back to the New Testament because there is some really intense stuff happening in the Old Testament. And we wanna tackle these stories because we want you guys to know that there's nothing that God cannot do. If you don't learn anything else from this series, what I hope that you take away after every one of these messages is that there is nothing impossible with our God. It sounds simple, but it is so true. And if Christians would believe that, it would change everything about how they live. And when you look at these stories, I hope you like reality TV because this puts the Kardashians to shame, I'm telling you. So you can kind of consider it not like the pilot of the series, like setting up the story, the narrative that's gonna lead us through the Old Testament to Jesus. Because I don't know if y'all know this, but in the very beginning of your Bible, in Genesis chapter three, there's this moment where God, Adam and Eve had just eaten the fruit, they sinned, begun the fall of mankind, and God comes down and he curses Adam, Eve, and Satan. And he does this thing where he predicts for the first time the gospel. He promises the coming of Jesus to the world. And he says in Genesis chapter three to Satan that one day there's gonna become an offspring from Eve that's going to crush your head, which we know now is defeating Satan, defeating sin once and for all. And this is why you have to know your Old Testament. Because if you watch the narrative of the Old Testament and when you read these names in Matthew, what Matthew is doing is so genius. He's saying, let me tell you about the savior you're about to read about. He is the product of God being faithful to his promise despite all circumstances. Despite an unfaithful people, God was faithful to his promise. Look at these names, they are what prove that. God is faithful to his promise. And the whole Old Testament is tracking these names and watching how God brings about Jesus to the world. So before you read about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, learn about where he came from and that's what we're gonna do in this series. And so, just starting in Matthew chapter one, I'm gonna read three verses tonight, and then we'll keep on going in the rest of the series. It says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, if you are, like I said, a Jew reading this at this time, you're like, hold up. Judah and Tamar, that's Jesus' great, great, great grandparents, because that story is crazy. Because you know that in Genesis chapter 38, it's one of the most scandalous stories in all the Bible. And we're gonna get to that really soon, but I want you to know that behind every single one of these names, like I said, is a story. For most, it's a really, really messed up story. But the reality is, is that should be weirdly comforting because behind every single one of your names tonight, I know, is a story. Every single person in this chair tonight, you have a story. You have something that makes up who you are. You've probably been through really hard things. 
You've been through really crazy circumstances and trials and situations. You've done things that maybe you were not proud of. And I know that behind every single one of your names is a story. And I believe that some of you tonight, Jesus wants to set free because you think that your story is worthless. You think your story is too messed up. You think that you are too far gone. And so this is what this message is about. This is who this series is for. It's for the person who believes that they are disqualified from being used and loved by God. It's for the person who is maybe out on this whole Christian thing or they're out on God. Sure, he's a good thing, but we're not really tight like that or I'm not one of those Jesus freaks. You're out on God because when you look at your circumstances or your heartbreak or your trials, you believe that God must be out on you. It's for the person that believes that guilt and shame will rule, rule their life forever because they, their sin is too great. The gap between them and God is too far and they'll never be able to fully catch up and be near to him. That's who this message is for because that's simply not true and you're gonna see that tonight. If you don't take notes, if you don't walk away with anything else, here is the thesis of this message. Here's what I hope tonight, if someone says to you, hey, what was the message about tonight? Here's what I hope you take away. God uses sinful people to execute his perfect plan. God uses sinful people to execute his perfect plan. And we're gonna see that played out by zeroing in on the story of Judah and Tamar. So buckle up, because <laughs> it gets heated. So, like I said, reading the Old Testament can be hard, and sometimes these names can get confusing, and so a practice that we've done around here is we have put the names of the Old Testament to kind of more like relevant characters that you might be able to identify with. So I thought I would help us out. Uh, let's take Judah. And I'm sorry if you have watched The Greatest Showman, this is gonna ruin everything for you. Judah <laughs> is Hugh Jackman, okay? And what we're gonna see in this story, before we get there, a little bit of setup, is Hugh is gonna marry his girl Shua. All right, we got Judah and Shua, all right? So they're married, everything's going great until they have three sons who are just awful for whatever reason. We got Ur, Zac Efron, who else we got? Onan as Jafar, <laughs> and <laughs> Shalah from Josh is Drake and Josh. And so Shalah, Sheila, whatever you wanna call him, I don't really know, that's the point. And you'll see if you keep reading why I picked Jafar. He just, Onan reminds me of a Jafar character, I don't know why. But what's happening is, is Judah, who we are kind of emphasizing this story is about, was a, a son of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And you might rem uh, remember Judah from the story of Joseph. Joseph gets a big chunk of the book of Genesis. And there's this really weird moment that happens where right before Joseph, um, or right after Joseph is given dreams, his brothers get really jealous. And Judah is the guy who comes up with the idea of saying, let's not kill him, let's throw him into slavery. Let's sell him and get some money. And then Judah goes back to their father, Jacob, and says, your son's been murdered, we're so sorry. That's what Judah does, that's who Judah is, okay? And so then, out of nowhere, the story of Joseph stops, and in chapter 38 of Genesis, we like go in on Judah's life post making that decision to sell his brother, his own blood, into slavery. And it seems like his guilt and shame has led him to quite the place here, because this is a really, really crazy situation we're about to read about. And so they have these three kids, Ur, Onan, and Sheila, let's call Josh Sheila. And 
they're like, okay, let's get a wife for our oldest son. And so they get her a wife named Tamar, Zendaya, who's even beautiful with pink hair. And so they get married, but we find out that Ur is a bad guy, so he dies. So then naturally in this culture and in this time, they say, okay, let's give Tamar uh, the next son in line, which is Jafar. Onan, come to find out, as we all know, he's a villain, he's wicked, so then he dies. And then after Onan dies, we have Josh. The problem is, is Josh is way too young and he's Josh. And so he's really, really young and Judah says, hey, one day I will allow you to marry Sheila in the Bible, not Josh, when he's of age. And so Tamar's like, fine. And Tamar moves back in with her own dad and she waits for him to become of age. And that's where we pick up in the story. If you would look at me at Genesis with me, Genesis 38, verse 11. Genesis 38, verse 11. Here we go. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would also die like his two brothers. So you know what's happening? Judah's like, well, you kind of have this curse about you, Tamar, where every time I give you one of my sons, they die. And so I'm not gonna do it, but I'll just kind of like keep you happy and think in a lot of time you'll get to marry him. So pretty much, Josh is dead to Tamar. So Josh, out of the picture. And so Tamar went back to live in her father's home, verse 12. Some years later, years later, Judah's wife died. So now Shua, gone. Shua is out of the story. And all we have left is Judah and Tamar. Father-in-law, daughter-in-law, a disaster. So. Someone told Tamar, we're in verse 13, look, your father-in-law, Judah, is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So wife died, you know, went through a hard time. Now it's time to like take his mind off of it, shear his sheep. And so he's going up to Timnah, as one does. And (laughs) Tamar was aware that Sheila had grown up. So he's grown now, he's of age to marry, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So... She changed, this is where it gets really weird. She changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. So Judah with the sheep heading to Shear on the road to Timnah. He walks through this place called Enam, looks over a beautiful lady in a veil. I guess veils were attractive because he, you know what I mean? So that's all he sees. So then... Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. Remember, this is his daughter-in-law, thought she was a prostitute. So he stopped and propositioned her, let me have sex with you, which I'm like, what a great pickup line. (laughs) I think sadly some guys think that works today. Um, So let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. She then says, this is where it gets scandy. She says, well, how much will you pay to have sex with me? I read this and I'm like, (laughs) Tamar asked, I'll send you a young goat from my flock. Young goats, nice. Judah promised, but what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat? 
because she has trust issues now at this point, as most women do. And so she's asking for, she's asking for collateral. You know, the whole like, hey, I'm gonna come back and pay you. Well, let me keep your watch or your car until then. She's asking for some collateral. So here's what he says. Um, where are we at? Here we go, verse 18. Well, what kind of guarantee do you want? He replied, she answered, leave me your identification seal. So basically like the modern day ID and it's cord and the walking stick you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her. Mm-hmm. And she became pregnant. Afterwards, she went back home, took off her veil and put on her widow's clothing as usual, as usual. And so after they did the freaky, Judah goes on, shears his sheep, and then he comes back and here's what we see happen. I'm gonna paraphrase it for us. We don't have time to read it all. Basically, he gets back home and he like hits up his boy. I think his name's like Haram or, yeah, Hurrah. And he says, yo, uh, I need you. I can't go back there. Like I have that, like I feel bad about myself. I hooked up with a prostitute, but would you be a homie? Take this goat. I promised her a goat. Get my stuff back, bring it back. Cause I don't want people seeing me like this out in the streets with the girls and all this stuff. And his friend's like, yeah, I'll take the goat. I'll get your stuff. And so like a, he's a bro, he takes the goat and he goes and he asks the guys at the, at the edge of the place, hey, where's the prostitute, the local prostitute? And they're like, well, we're fresh out of, we don't have those. There's no, <laughs> there's no prostitutes here. We haven't seen those. And he's like, huh, Judah is gonna get a kick out of this. And so, he goes back and he tells Judah, hey, like there, ain't, there is no, I searched everywhere, there's no prostitutes. And basically Judah's like, she can keep the hoodie, like she can keep my stuff. I'm not trying to seem desperate. I'm not trying to seem needy. I'm not trying to get laughed at. He has this huge fear of man complex. He won't go back. He's ashamed and he's like, she can keep it. Let me wipe my hands clean. And just when he thinks he is out, like just when he thinks, and like guys, you never, Get out, all right? It always finds you. He thinks he's in the clear. No one knows I did this thing. I was in a bad place. My wife just died, all these different things. And then this happens, verse 24. Whew. This is the moment in the show where everyone's like. <laughs> About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute, and now because of this, she's pregnant. Judah's response. Bring her out and let her be burned. <laughs> he just hooked up with a prostitute, comes back, thinks his daughter-in-law, who he's been, by the way, like lying to and keeping out to dry, thinks she's now gotten pregnant and now his first response is to burn her. He wants to burn his daughter-in-law, okay? Light her on fire. Verse 25, but as they were taking her out to kill her, she's a smart girl, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely, I love that ad, look closely. <laughs> is that my, does that say Ju, Judah? You know, he sits back. Whose sealing cord and walking stick are these, Judah? So she asked. Judah recognized, he knew he messed up. <laughs> Judah recognized, <clears throat> and immediately and said, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, she like I said I would, and Judah never slept with Tamar again. We go to see, that's good, way to go. Judah, what a good guy, right? 
That's so good, so noble. And then we see the rest of the, the chapter, it sees that Tamar gives birth to twins. There's this weird situation where one's like coming out and then like it goes back in and then like the other one gets in front of it. You, you girls are like, what? And gets in front of it and then that one comes out and then Perez, out of the two twins, their names are Perez and Zara. Perez continues the lineage we see in Matthew of Jesus. This is the story. These are the people. These are the types of things that God uses to point to the savior of the world. Because you might read this and think, how in the world is a father-in-law hooking up with the fake prostitute daughter-in-law have to do anything with us tonight? Like when you read this story, I'm thinking, who's the hero? Who's the good guy? Who's the example to follow? Who's like Jesus? And I think that's kind of the point. No one is. These stories are really messed up people, really sinful people in need of a savior. That's how this relates to you and I, is we're not perfect. I think we think the Bible is about a bunch of perfect people trying to live a perfect life for a perfect God. That's not the story at all. It's a bunch of really broken, messed up people in need of a perfect savior to come and save them. That's the whole narrative of scripture, is really, really broken people. So this story is way more applicable to every single one of us than we wanna believe. You may not have prostituted yourself. You may not have tried to burn somebody to death. But you have been dead in your sin. You have been in desperate need of a savior. And if God can take something like Judah and Tamar if Matthew can think it is worth adding it to the book of the Bible to recall these people and say, hey, these are the ancestors of Jesus. It's like Matthew wants us to see, hey, I'm not ashamed. This is what God does. He takes broken things and makes them complete. He takes sinful people and he uses them to point to the Savior, the coming Messiah. And you're gonna see in this series, Scandals, that God takes these really, really scandalous stories, these really, really sinful people and he doesn't try to make them good. No, he shows how good he is through them, how faithful he is through them. And he wants to do the same with us tonight. Do you realize that in this story alone, we see that Judah threw his own brothers into slavery for money. He lies to his dad about it. He raises three wicked sons. He lies to his daughter-in-law. Tamar fakes a prostitute. Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law, struggles with fear of man, is embarrassed. Judah almost burns her alive. And yet these are the type of people that God says, yeah, I'm gonna use you to point to Jesus. I'm gonna bring Jesus to the world through your lineage, through your offspring. So if God, my question tonight is, if God can use them to bring Jesus to the world, what makes you think that he cannot use you to do the same? He wants to use you to bring Jesus to the world today because Jesus is very much alive. And our world, just like the people of this time, are very much in need of a savior. But they need people who will use their story to proclaim his glory to the world. But you have to see that God wants to use you. And I think a lot of times we live this life in fear or we think, no, it's up to that guy or it's up to them or I'm just not that person or man, if only you knew what I come from, it doesn't matter. What I want y'all to believe tonight is there is no one too far gone. There is no one disqualified because God is the only one qualified and he is the one that makes moves. He is the one that does miracles. 
that if you are here tonight, you are a miracle and you have an opportunity to be used and loved by God. And he has done so much. He has gone through so many links for you to know that. Tonight, this story shows us again that God uses sinful people to execute his perfect plan. But if you're gonna be used by God, if we are gonna believe that God wants to use us, we have to believe that there is nothing impossible with him. We, with him. we have to believe that he is more powerful than whatever you think is holding you back. And I think a lot of us come here and we hear things like the gospel, we hear things like God loves you no matter what. We're like, yeah, that's really good, thanks for the reminder. It's not a reminder, it's a reality that can change everything about your life. And I know sometimes we can be our worst enemies. We can be the thing in the way from God being able to use us. We can be the thing that stops us from believing that God really does love us. We can be our worst enemy. And on top of that, there is an enemy out there, Satan, who was there in the garden when God made that promise that he was gonna bring Jesus to change the world and save the world once and for all. Ever since then, he has set out on a mission to convince you that you are disqualified, that your story is too unique that it goes further than the gospel can reach. And there are some of you tonight that you come here time and time again, yet nothing changes because the enemy is deceiving you. If I was the enemy and I wanted to stop young adults of today from proclaiming Jesus to the world, from experiencing life and life to the full, I will do whatever it takes to cause them to believe that they are not good enough, that they are disqualified, that this might be true for her or him or them, but not you. And I think that he has two major ways that despite what we read in this story, despite what we read about God, despite what we hear time and time again here at the porch, I believe that the enemy uses two ways to convince us that we are disqualified from being used and loved by God. I wanna talk about those two things tonight. The first one I think that he does is he convinces us that our circumstances disqualify us. He convinces us that our circumstances disqualify us from being used by God. We think that the things around us are what define us. A lot of times we self-deprecate and think, oh, well, if I just had what they had, if I was just like her, if I just looked different, if I was just in a different life season, if I was just a different age, when I'm that age, I'll start taking God more seriously. Or man, if I landed that job, if I was married, if my parents would not have gotten a divorce, if I had a dad around growing up, if I had more followers, if I went to that school or did that thing, then, then God could use me. You think your circumstances dictate God's abilities, but God should be the one dictating your circumstances in all things. But he wants you to wake up and realize it, that your circumstances are not what disqualify you. They are actually the thing that God uses to qualify you, to be used and loved by him. But you have to see them for what they are. So many of us live in this over there syndrome this over there mentality, that if I just had what was over there, then. If I was over there, then. If I was over there, then. How long? Has he been saying that for five years, 10 years, 15 years? When are you gonna do that thing God's been calling you to do? When are you gonna stop blaming him or her or that situation and start trusting God? When are you gonna start thinking that you just need more resources? 
when you have the source? When are you gonna stop letting your circumstance dictate your God? Because why would God, think about this logically, why would God give you what's over there when you are not realizing what's right here? When you're not grateful for what's right here, why would he take you over there? It reminded me of when I got my first car. I grew up in a podunk East Texas town. Nice cars were not a thing, but I had a really, really not nice car. It was actually a hand-me-down. It was my mom's car, which is even more embarrassing. It was a Malibu. And it was white, it was dirty. And I just remember driving to school. I was like, isn't that your mom's car? And it just, I remember getting frustrated because some of my other friends, they got a new car. And I remember being like, dad, why didn't I get a new car when I turned 16? He's like, son, I gotta see how you drive. I gotta see how you treat this car. I gotta see if you're reckless. I gotta see if you know how to keep it clean. I gotta see if you know how to steward this vehicle. Because why would I give you something new that costs me a lot more money if you are not faithful what you have right here? If you don't know how to drive properly and take care of what I've given you right now. So many of us want the new shiny car. I remember in college, I just like got all in with Jesus. I was so fired up after my freshman year. No more the world, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I abandoned my major, my scholarship, all these different things. I'm like, yeah, Jesus freak. And I'm like feeling so like on this high. I just got back from a mission trip in the Philippines. I was feeling so good. And he's like, leave it all, start a Bible study in your dorm. And I'm like, come again. And I'm like, you don't want me to go like lead some movement? You don't want me to go like start some conference or a podcast? You want me to just start a Bible study in my dorm? He's like, yeah. So I grabbed my friend, we started a Bible study for the first year. An entire year, y'all, four people came. Four, I'm knocking on every door. Come by, we have cookies, we have pizza. Four, same four. One of them played video games on his phone on loud. <laughs> One of them fell asleep on a beanbag. And one of them would eat the cookies. And as soon as I said, okay, open up your Bibles, leave. <laughs> Every time. And I'm just like, so basically I had one. I had one. And I just remember those moments being like, God, how much more longer do I have to keep doing this? He's like, until I tell you to stop. Will you trust me? Will you trust me with the now? Will you trust me with the here? Will you trust that I am doing something? I'm producing something in this season. Will you trust me that I'm asking you to be faithful in the here and now. And if you had told that heavyweight, curly-headed band nerd those days in that dorm room leading a Bible study, that one day he'd be teaching from the same Bible to people his age, I would have laughed at you. Because I wasn't fully in with, all in with the here. I thought that over there was better. And one day God got a hold of my heart. And I remember just this moment with God, I was like, God, if it's just four people for the rest of my life, I trust you. I trust you. And I also realized though that for some people, circumstances don't just look like a Bible study. They don't just look like a car. They can look like really, really hard things. And you wonder how can something be good from all of this? And I wanna remind you of a truth. To say that God cannot use you because of your circumstances around you is to simultaneously state that God made a mistake or he is not in control. Let me say it again. To say God cannot use you because of the circumstances around you is to simultaneously state that God made a mistake or he is not in control. 
But we know that's not true. We see it all throughout scripture, just a few. Numbers 23, 19 said, God is not man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? God is who he says he is. What he's put in front of you, he will complete. Philippians 4.19 says, my God will supply every need, not once. He doesn't promise the once, but every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You are in this circumstance. You have faced these things because God is trying to produce something in you, a deep trust in him so then he can work through you, so he can use you. But you keep thinking these circumstances are my God. You keep thinking these circumstances are more powerful than my God and your circumstances are your problem. And God wants you to see that your circumstances are your solution. They're the way that you can depend on God and he can use those circumstances to change the world. Every single one of you has gone through a unique thing that makes you uniquely who you are. And God wants to use that. Y'all, I have been in deep moments of grief. I have been in deep moments of isolation, loneliness, despair, where I am crying out in my room alone, wondering, God, how could you use death? How could you use such awful things? How could you use this sickness? How could you use this really, really hard situation for something good? How? It hurts. How can you use this circumstance? Why would you use this circumstance? And I wanted to close my fist and not trust him and not trust him because how could a good God allow that kind of pain? But over time, I slowly started to let go, trust him, learn about his character, learn about his sovereignty, how just in control he really was and how he was trying to use those circumstances to develop me, use me, show me his love, and now I get to step into people's pain with them. I get to relate to people and go to a deep place with them because I've been into a deep place with the Lord. But it started happening the day that I made him God of my circumstances, not circumstances, my God. Your circumstances are things that describe you, but they are not what defines you. Jesus is what defines you. Your circumstances are things that describe you, but they are not what define you. Jesus defines you. The second thing that we think disqualifies us, that the enemy, he really uses this one to believe that we are not capable of being used by God is our sin. The enemy often, and we often believe that our sin is what disqualifies us from being able to use by God, but I want you to remember the story that we started off with tonight. That there were people that were having sex with each other, fake prostituting themselves out, willing to kill each other, really, really awful people all throughout scripture, full of sin, yet God used them. God produced something good out of them. And if he can do that with someone like Judah and Tamar, what could he do with you? What can he do with you? That's what I wanna remind you of tonight is that God is not done with you. God is not out on you. I do not care what you have done. You think, man, not me. 
If only you knew. If only you knew. JD, I might not know, but he does. He knows. He knows everything you've done. But Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, that when he knew how Judah and Tamar would act, when he knew that you and I would sin against him while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we got cleaned up. In the midst of our sin, Christ died for us. And you think because maybe you had an abortion. You think maybe because you have this crazy sexual past of addiction or you struggle with same-sex attraction or you have an STD or you've cheated on someone, hooked up with someone yesterday, you stole something major at work, you're addicted to porn or drugs for the last 17, 12, 10 years. You think that that disqualifies you, but the thing about this story and every story is it points to the thing that actually qualifies you, it's Jesus. Every single one of these stories, no matter how bad, God uses to point to Jesus. And when your life intersects with Jesus, everything changes. The things that once held you back, now you are able to be set free. Second Corinthians 5, 17 says it like this. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ, anyone who would give their life to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. The old life has gone, the new life has begun. Your past, gone. Your sins, gone. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus, that's the coolest part of all of this. It's just like God used all these really bad things to the point, point to the savior of the world. He uses your bad things. He uses your sin to point people to the savior of the world. He uses your story to point to the story that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to the earth to pay the price that we could not, to die on a cross, to live a perfect life and to be the perfect sacrifice and that his blood was shed on the cross making atonement, making sacrifice for you and I. He died on that cross, but then he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose again, defeating death, defeating sin, once and for all. God fulfilled his promise through Jesus. And in that moment, you are no longer disqualified because of your past, because of your sin. You now can live a life free. The thing that you once had to hide, you now can proclaim. You can say, look at me, look at my sin. I will show you my savior. When you look at my story, you cannot look at my story now without looking at the savior who saved me. Everything changes. You get a new life in Christ. The old is gone. The new life has begun. Your sin now has become a part of your story. It is in no way the point of your story. Jesus is the point of your story. Colossians 2 says, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all our sins. Hallelujah. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. Satan has no more claim on your life. You cannot, you don't have to hold on to your past anymore. You can be free and he shamed them. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The point of Jesus is that you are no longer defined by what you've done, but rather all that Jesus has done for you. That's why this message, that's why this series is amazing. As we don't sit here and just look and go, look at all these sinners, look at all these sinners. We use this series to say, look at our savior. Look at what he can do with those who will trust him. 
those who will surrender. He's not looking for perfection, he's looking for surrender. He's looking for your heart. And if you would give it to him, watch what he will do. He will make you new. No one here tonight is too far. No one here tonight has messed up too bad. That thing that you think you are taking to the grave, let me remind you, he went to the grave. He went to the grave and he didn't stay there. So that way you don't have to stay in your sin. You don't have to stay in your secrecy. You can bring it to the light. Because Jesus rose, because he defeated death, you can walk alive, you can walk new. To say that your past is too messed up for God to use is to basically say the gospel is not powerful enough. To say that your past is too messed up for God to use is to basically say that the gospel is not powerful enough. But we know as Christians that that's not true. We know that in Jesus, all things are made new. Your sin is something that describes you, but it is not what defines you. Jesus defines you. Your sin may be a part of your story. It is no longer the point of your story. Jesus is. I asked a few of you on Instagram to just reply to my story. I said, I once was blank, but because of Jesus, I'm blank. Here's what people replied, just a few. I once was wanting guys to fill the void of love and attention that my dad left empty. And because of Jesus, I have unlimited love, attention, and wholeness from God. I once was a slave to suicidal thoughts, but because of Jesus, I am now free. I once was a slave to masturbation and pornography, but because of Jesus, I'm redeemed and made new. I once was a slave to alcoholism, but because of Jesus, I'm saved and free. This story tonight, your story tonight, should be a reminder that God can use any story to point to the goodness of Jesus. Every single one of you. So many of us spend our life focusing on our sin instead of our savior. You think constantly, I can't, my sin, I can't, this addiction, I can't, this thing, this thing, this thing. You know, we tend to follow what we focus on. What you obsessively think about, that's what you tend to go after. And because you're constantly thinking about me, 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 my sin, that's why you're a slave to it. It's time to stop focusing on your sin and focus on the finished work of your savior. And if you would look at him rather than at your sin, watch what will happen in your life. If you will remind yourself that he's defeated your sin, watch what will happen in your life. If you will preach the gospel to yourself, this truth to yourself every single day and look at your savior, look at your savior. When the enemy brings your sin, when he brings your circumstances, your past to your mind, if you would look at your savior, watch what would happen. Watch how God would use you. I once had to, I'll start to wrap up. Do a, the, my doctor thought I had um, hypertension because I kept having an elevated blood pressure. So he sent me home with this 24-hour blood pr pressure machine and it's so obnoxious. It's like this big pack and then you hook on the thing and every 20 minutes for 24 hours, even while you're sleeping, it's like beep, beep. <laughs> and you're like. And the problem is when you focus on the blood pressure dropping the numbers, you know what actually happens? You get more stressed, you start focusing harder, your blood pressure starts to elevate. And I'm gonna be like, oh my gosh, I won't be able to drink coffee. He's gonna take everything away from me. He's gonna freak out. I've gotta calm this down, I gotta calm this down. So I'm doing meditation, I light incense, I don't even do incense, I'm just doing all these different things to calm myself down. But the reality was is the more that I kept focusing on getting my numbers down, the more they kept rising. I think it's the same with our sin. The more we keep trying to focus on no, no, bad, 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 it keeps rising. 
up in us because we're so focused on it. You know what happened? I finally gave up. And I said, God, if I have hypertension, it's good that I know I'm giving it to you. I'm gonna go about my day. I'm gonna go to the store. I'm gonna hang out with my friends. I'm gonna eat normal. And it's up to you. Give the results to you. You know what doctor said to me? He said, look good. Started off a little high, but then it got normal. I was like, huh, okay. <laughs> There's something about that in Jesus that if Christians would stop focusing on themselves and their circumstances and their sin and letting them define their life and start letting their savior define their life, I think that things would change. I think they would start walking in their calling I think they would start believing that God could use anything to change the world, that God can love anyone, even sinners like them. It's time that we shift our focus off ourselves. It's time for Christians to start living like the grave is more powerful than our sin, that the empty tomb is more powerful than our sin because if you continue to let sin define you, you know what you're living like? You're living like the gospel story is incomplete. You're living like Jesus died, but then he stayed dead. But that's not the story. He rose again. The tomb is empty. You are free. So live like it. Live like you are a free people, no longer held back, no longer disqualified, but qualified because of what Jesus has done. Romans 8 puts it like this. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. Because of Jesus, our sin is dead. We need to start living like it's dead. Start living like Jesus is alive, and so can we be. Psalm 103.12 says that he, meaning God, has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Isaiah 43.25 says, I, meaning God, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. I thought that was so crazy that God says, hey, I took care of your sins. I, I, my son died for you. So that way, I don't have to ever think about those things again. They don't define you. And if God can so easily forget your sins, why can't you? God, the one that you sins against, the one that you wronged, if he can move on, if he can forget, why do you keep remembering? Why do you keep dwelling on the mistakes you've made? Why do you keep letting your past hold you back from a future of being loved and used by God? He's forgotten. He put your sin in the grave where it belongs. You can too. You can live like you are new. This uh, passage really, this message altogether really spoke to me because this is my story. I was someone for majority of my life, I was marked by believing that the gospel was accessible to every other person except for me. I had heard it time and time again, I'm a preacher's kid from a really small town. 
where I felt like everyone was expecting me because of the label of being a Christian or being in a Christian home, I prayed the prayer and I felt like everyone expected me just to be perfect. I, prayed like, I felt like everyone expected me just to be the good moral guy who made no choices. And because of that, I dove into religion, not a relationship with God. And that religion made me an expert hider. And instead of being free from my sin, I was a slave to my sin, causing me to live an exhausting double life. To the world, I loved God. On the inside, I hated myself, because I knew myself. I didn't believe God knew me. I didn't believe God wanted to know me. I didn't believe God could love someone like me. Hiding sexual brokenness, fear of man, idolization of self, manipulation, all these different things that I had done had just piled up and piled up and piled up and no one knew. So because of that, anxiety, exhaustion, and I just felt like I was on this hamster wheel of life, spinning, spinning, spinning. But like I said earlier, one day, it was like the veil came off my eyes and I hope for some of you tonight, my prayer all day for some of you tonight is that this would be the moment that may you, maybe you've heard this and it's gone in one ear and out the other and because there's never been fruit in your life. When you look at your life right now, nothing's ever changed, maybe because you've never truly received. That's what happened to me. I grew up hearing it in my house all the time. But after finding the end of myself and being tired of hiding, it was there in the Philippines that God met me. I went on a mission trip to help people meet God. That's where I met him myself. I saw people broken. I saw people confessing sin. And it was like for the first time I was like, wait, y'all aren't perfect. They start telling me about the Bible. and No, the Bible's not full of perfect people. It's full of a bunch of broken people pointing to a perfect savior in need of Jesus. These people are in need of Jesus. You can be broken. You can boast in your weakness and his power rests on you, JD. You can be weak. I began to confess sin and be healed and they prayed for me like the Bible calls us to and everything began to change about my life. I came back, I got plugged into the church. I started showing my wounds. I started talking about my story, my true story in a new way that I'd never shared before. And from that day forward, it was no longer about me. My life was all about him. It was no longer believing that I was held back because of my circumstances or my sin. It was just all about Jesus. And it was so funny, the things that I thought disqualified me for so long, I learned Jesus told me, hey, that's what qualifies you. It's what makes you a perfect candidate for my grace, for my love, for my death for you. I defeated sin for you, for this moment. You don't have to hide. You can walk in the light. And I think there's so many people in here tonight that whether you realize it or not, you've been living like you're disqualified. You've been walking with a limp, addicted, saying, I'll never be free. I'll never be that guy. I'll never be that girl. And Jesus is saying, hey, no, I make all things new. I take Judah and Tamar's. I take people just like you, people like you, JD, and I make them new. I qualify them. And I'm telling you guys, if you would believe that, if you would believe that the blood of Jesus is stronger than your circumstances, than your sin, I want you to watch how God will take you and people like us and Judah's and Tamar's. He will take sinful people to execute a perfect plan. Let's pray.
God, we trust in your sovereignty. We trust in your goodness. We trust that in you and through you, all things hold together. And I can imagine there are some people tonight that if we were to read their story tonight, if we were to put their circumstances or their sin on display for the world to see like we just did with Judah and Tamar, people would think there's no way. There's no way God can use this, this this amount of brokenness, this amount of hurt, this amount of pain, these circumstances, there's no way that God wants to use this to point to Jesus. But that's just not true. May we take a step of faith tonight in believing that you wanna use every single story in this room tonight. You wanna take the person who has been a slave to sin and set them free. You wanna take the person who has held themselves back, wishing they had different circumstances, and you wanna change and transform their mind to see what you are doing in the midst of the hard, in the midst of the challenge, what you're producing in them so you can work through them. I pray that tonight, we would not be marked by people who think we have to clean up our act to come to you or be a perfect people. We would be a broken people realizing our need for a perfect savior. Would you come, take this mess and make it a message. Take these stories, share them with the world that all may know that left to ourselves we are hopeless. Left to our sin, we are thirsty and tired and need to come back again and again and again. But with you, Jesus, with you, God, you make all things new. You can rewrite the story and we can be free. We can be loved and used by you. May we worship like it's so. In the name that we pray, amen.